when people invest and they expect capital growth. Now, that creates its own issue in itself. When it pops, it's going to be nasty and you need to have protected yourself. So if you're investing in the hope that your prices are going to go up, there's only so much inflation will do to that. That's my issue. But I would say if you're going to invest and you're then relying on the capital growth, fine, but I'd err on the side of caution with that. You could have a place worth five million quid or a quid. If it cash flows positively, happy days. You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own. Hello there. Welcome to episode 30. That was the voice of fellow podcaster Rob Smallbone, and he'll be giving us the benefit of his considerable experience gleaned from interviewing scores of property experts, both on the Property Nomads podcast and for his book, 101 Top Property Tips, Real Life Practical Tips from Successful Investors. This episode comes hot on the heels of our mini-series on expat property tax. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you might want to go back to episode 23 for an introduction to Sean, the property tax accountant, who was my resident guest for the last seven days as we produced seven episodes covering everything from property ownership structures and tax planning to capital gains tax, compliance, risk management and everything else in between. If you do know what I'm talking about, then sorry for repeating myself. As you can imagine, I'm fairly tired after releasing eight episodes in eight days, including this one. But a quote from James Dyson springs to mind. James Dyson is the inventor of the Dyson vacuum cleaner, of course. And he said that when you feel tired, you must remember that other people are also feeling tired. When you feel like giving up, it's precisely at that point that everyone else gives up. So it's at that point that you must put in extra effort and accelerate. And then success is literally just around the corner. Dyson's words have been ringing around my head this week as I've been slogging through the day job trying to buy a property, more about that in future episodes, and releasing these eight episodes. Why not just take a break from the podcast for a week, I hear you say. Well, this is where my story coincides with that of today's guest, Rob Smallbone, who has been consistently publishing episodes of his podcast since November 2018. And in that time, I don't think he's missed one episode. In fact, he now publishes two episodes a week, one on property and one on his other passion, travel. In fact, he'd just come back from Mexico when we recorded this interview. As you know, I'm a big fan of property podcasts and Rob's is one of the best. Great content, great guests and a host who knows much more about property than I do. But in all Rob's 280 plus episodes, as I record this in June 2022, I couldn't find a joke. I asked my new pod pal Rob to put that right. Why did the Mexican push his wife off the cliff? I don't know. Why did the Mexican push his wife off the cliff? Tequila. (laughs) That is good. Postcode challenge. The postcode that you have chosen is BN12PH. Why have you chosen that postcode, Rob? That's currently where I live. A very simple reason. Sounds like the centre of Brighton, BN1. Pretty much just on the border of Hove, pretty much on the seafront, luckily. So happy days. Quick reminder, you need two to win. Best of three, multiple choice. Question number one, what is the average house price in BN1 2PH? Is it A, £482,000, B, £502,000 or C, £492,000? If in doubt, middle it out. I'll go straight down the middle and say B. 502000 Yes. 
Rob, you're in trouble. You're one down with two to go. It's actually 492,000. Question number two. As a whole, the UK population claims itself as approximately 86% white. Is your postcode more white or less white than the UK average? Oh, dear, oh, dear. I'm going to say more. Yes, correct. It is more white. It's 92% white. Wow, that's interesting. So 4% above the average. So you're still in with a chance. 1-1, one, one, last question. About 100 metres from your postcode is the headquarters of the Patonk Club. Is this a club for cooking, dancing or sport? I've played Patonk, so I can tell you it's sport. Yep. You're lucky. You're lucky. There's a question that you knew. <laughs> actually, straight from where we live, there's actually a place to play Patonk about... 50 metres away, so yeah. But that's it then, that must be the club. Is that not the club where you play? But I mean, it must be if, if that is the case, so... It's on the beach, I think. Yeah, we're talking about the same place then, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Metres So is. you actually play there. Wow, stroke of luck there for question three, wasn't it, Rob? Well, if I'd have got my middle sorted properly, I would have got a full out, <laughs> True. <laughs> Tell us how the podcast started, Rob. Good question. Very good question. It's always been part of the, it's always been part of the idea that the grander scheme of things, basically. My ex-business partner and I spoke about it for a very long time and we pulled the trigger on it a few years ago now. He actually came up with the name, the Property Nomads podcast. So I'm not going to claim the name because he came up with it. From there, we just cracked on. It was our way of adding value. That's how it started with that in mind. And, you know, for the last, what, three years or so, we've just been consistent. I will point out it should have started earlier, but we ummed and ahed about it a bit too much. You know, glad we started anyway, but uh, yeah, we could be on many more episodes now. You said your ex-business partner. We parted ways a couple of years ago, various different reasons, different, you know, ideologies, that sort of thing. But my current business partner, Aaron, we met at university, our portfolio, been growing for about six years. You'll see him out and about sometimes with the branded T-shirt, the Property Nomads podcast. So we've effectively bought everything in-house. Aaron doesn't really get involved in the podcast as such. It's normally my voice that we hear on the episodes. But yeah, technically in our business, everything is in-house at the moment. And that's where we are. You have written three books, Buy to Let, How to Get Started, 101 Top Property Tips, Real Life Practical Tips from Successful Investors, and Property FAQs, Answers to Frequently Asked Property Questions. Which is your favourite? They've all been tough to write. They've all got practical information in them. I'm you know, proud of all three books. But if I have to pinpoint one, I would say the first one. I just think that it's, a, it's just something about it that makes it stand out. It's, I mean, literally is a guide to get started. You know, that's invaluable. The one that looks the most interesting to me is 101 top property tips, real life practical tips from successful investors. What patterns emerged or trends emerged from speaking to so many successful property investors? Is there one theme that stood out? The things that stood out are really things that shouldn't stand out, but they do stand out. So, for example, people talk about fundamentals, do your homework, you know, when you're researching an area, which, again, is common sense. If you're going to go to an area or get knowledge of an area, you take your time, you do your homework, you do your research. And people are very long term. Property is a get rich quick strategy. And I think from speaking to people that have been in property a lot longer than I have, that was probably the other key thing that came from it. But again, they're the things that stand out, but in reality, they shouldn't really stand out because property, wealth, that all takes time anyway. And again, fundamentals, homework, do your due diligence. It shouldn't stand out, but 
they were the common traits of, of what people were sharing. Yeah, I think people tend to talk a lot about due diligence and do less of it than they should, myself included, to be honest. I think we've all done that at some point. We like to talk the talk and don't always walk the walk 100%. There have been one or two times where we haven't done as much as we should have done. That's why you speak to people, don't you? It's, yeah. It keeps reaffirming it in your head. And whenever you hear these stories of a dodgy builder or something like that, and it always turns out that actually they'd forgotten to do their due diligence on that particular person and they hadn't really checked out that they'd had companies that had gone bust and things. Everyone knows that, but sometimes there's so many different things to think about that people occasionally drop the ball a little bit, don't they? Yeah, I think once your head's in something, as you quite rightly say, you, you drop the ball. It could be a solicitor, it could be a builder, it could be you haven't, you know, checked the roof for something. If I look back at, you know, all the mistakes that we've made, you know, maintenance and, and this and that over the years, a few of them I can look at and go, actually, it's easy to sit here and blame everyone else, but you've got to take responsibility for where you are. You know, what could we do to improve that process, improve our position? And if you think of it like that, then you'll end up sorting things out a lot quicker if, if that's the process that you, you take. So what is the biggest mistake you made? The biggest mistake financial-wise would be not realising that a property needed a full rewire. We didn't do enough electrical testing when we purchased the property in the first place. But I would say the caveat to that is that once we refinanced, we pretty much drew most of the initial investment out. So actually, that worked out in the end. That's the biggest financial mistake. The funniest mistake was actually with the first property. We were checking the joists by the front door, and they were a bit bouncy. And one of the builders, with all due respect to a bit of a large lad, decided to do a bit of a bounce test and fell through the floor. Wow. He was fine in the end. Okay. um, He probably didn't appreciate me bursting out into spontaneous laughter because I thought it was hilarious (laughs) at, at, at the time. That's probably been the funniest mistake. How about the podcast from speaking to all the guests that you've had on? What do you think has been the standout feature that unites all those guests? What do they all have in common? Mentality is probably the thing that I would point to. Everyone seems to have this can-do-it attitude, can-do-it mentality. You know, if you put your mind to it, you'll achieve it, all that sort of stuff. And that's important. There's always days that are better than others. You get your good days, you get your bad days. And it's about knowing why you're doing it. That's not just property. People just seem to have this mental fortitude. And I would say that's probably the underlying thing. You invest in a kind of like a triangle, right? So Rotherham, Burnley and Hull. You started in Hull and then which one came second? It was Burnley, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah, Burnley came second. It was a sort of a random opportunity that, that popped up. The numbers worked. So we went for it after visiting the town, again, doing a bit of homework, speaking to a few people. That property's worked out quite well. Um, in Rotherham, uh, that was the one with the electrical challenge. So again, in, in terms of numbers, that's actually worked out quite nicely in the long run. The reason for investing in three different places, in the long run, Hull is right on the water, it's right on the River Humber. You know, I'm not necessarily one for global warming and climate change, I won't lie. Uh, but if push comes to shove and most of Hull does end up underwater and it has been prone to flooding before, then we can at least shift focus on the other places if worse comes to worse. I'm not saying that will happen, but it's better to not have all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, diversification of location. In a crash, some places suffer more than other places, so it makes sense to be slightly diversified in location. Absolutely. You know, we know the demographic we're going to get in Hull. We know what's going on in the area. There is a lot of great things happening. And after living there for four and a half years, you do get that vibe that 
it's got a lot going for it. You do also get that vibe that actually it's not always at the forefront of bigger plans throughout the country. I know that people listen to this and say, well, you can say the same about the North in general. Yeah, fair comment, understandable. But, you know, in general, you do get this vibe that actually it's probably one of the last places that people think about. That's why we invest in that triangle. If something goes seriously wrong in one area, it might not go as far wrong in the other areas. But at the same time, it's important to point out that we do it for cash flow. We're not buying to hopefully then expect property prices to go up. If you do that, you've got a serious issue with the way that you're thinking about property, in my opinion. But that's a whole different story, macroeconomics wise. We do it for the cash flow. Is the cash flow good? It doesn't matter if the property is worth five million quid or a pound. You know, if the cash flow is 300 quid a month or whatever it is on a unit, great, happy days. The asset could be valued or whatever it wants to be valued at. As long as the cash flow is there, that's the key thing. And general rule of thumb it's better up north you're saying then that you are against the idea of people investing for capital growth or you're against it for yourself i don't have an issue if people want to invest for capital growth let's just take london if you invested in a property in abbey wood which is in southeast london if you'd invested there 10 years ago i think it said that the house prices have doubled I think, or if not, it was about 70% that it's gone up in, in the last decade because of Crossrail. Now, if you're doing that and you get capital growth out of it, fair play, because again, homework, due diligence, everything we've discussed. The challenge that I have is when people invest and they expect capital growth. Now, that creates its own issue in itself. Rob believes that due to macroeconomic issues related to COVID-19, investing for capital growth may not be the wisest option. When it pops, it's going to be nasty. Across the board, it is going to be nasty and you need to have protected yourself. So if you're investing in the hope that your prices are going to go up, there's only so much inflation will do to that. That's my issue. But I would say if you're going to invest and you're then relying on the capital growth, fine, but I'd err on the side of caution with that. You could have a place worth five million quid or a quid if it cash flows positively, happy days. The properties that you invest in, are they all kind of roughly about the same purchase price? Anywhere between the 50 and 80 mark is normally where we sit, what we're finding with inflation and so forth, that there's not a ridiculous amount going on at the moment or nothing that tickles our whippet as such. But that's how we normally buy. Uh, the things that we've started looking at as well are blocks of flats. If there's a free old block of flats, then you know we normally find once you divide the cost of the building by the amount of units, actually that can work out quite well. You buy refurbished refinance? The BRR model is what we would aim to follow 90% of the time. There have been the odd occasion where we haven't followed the model and we've just done purely on the cash flow. So if we've got a really good purchase price and there's not any work that needs doing, yeah, we just buy cash, leave it a little while and then refinance. We'll be back with the podcast in a second. But I just wanted to let you know that we help high net worth individuals who perhaps don't have the time, expertise or contacts to find deals that stack right now. We can offer fixed rate returns of up to 12%. So instead of watching your savings get swallowed by inflation, why not schedule a free call via the link in the show notes to see how we might work together. Now back to the pod. those properties that you buy around about 50,000 can you get mortgages on those because my understanding is you can't get a mortgage for less than a loan for less than 75,000 is that right or maybe that's just for expats that might just be for expats there's a couple of mortgage companies where the minimum loan is 50,000 all I would say if you get something that comes up that's sub 50k the easiest thing to do would be get investor finance on board get it purchased refinance at a later date 
So what would you say to people who say that at that end of the market, you're running the risk of, you know, a boiler collapsing and there's your cash flow gone for the whole year? That's why you have multiple properties. If you just do it on one or two properties and that happens, absolutely, completely agree. But if you end up with, you know, I think we've got, and I know it sounds blase, I think it's about 20, 21 units, something like that. If something goes wrong, yeah, we don't like it as much as the next people. But at the end of the day, we know that with that flow coming in, that it's not ideal. But it's not the end of the world either. At the bottom end of the market, if the place is right and the numbers are right, your cash flow can be quite good. Uh, all I would say on that is, you know, don't put your eggs in the basket with just one or two properties. I would say to people, put X amount of your monthly income into a reserve account. Then that way, if something does happen, you're not running around like a blue ass fly. Have you been finding it difficult recently to find deals? Because we use property sources predominantly, we haven't found it much of an issue because we've not really been out and about hunting ourselves. However, when we've spoken to various property sources, they might have found it a bit difficult. We haven't purchased anything for a little while. I'm quite sceptical macroeconomics-wise. Something nasty is coming up, and when it comes up, it will create a lot of opportunity. So there's nothing to worry about. But I guess the answer would be this. you know, Would you buy at the top of the market? I wouldn't. Even if you're buying and holding? Depends on your strategy, how long you can lock in the finance for. If you've got no interest in BRR and you're sat there with a pot of a few hundred thousand pounds, you can make it work for yourself. Absolutely, go ahead and do it if you want to. Let's just say you buy property for £100,000. Now, with all the currency printing that's happened and everything else that's going on, inflation, yada, 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 yada. When it crashes, if that same property then goes down to £80,000, may or may not happen. If you're not relying on BRR, you're fine because the cash flow is going to be there. Your mortgage is locked in. Your mortgage rate's locked in. You'll probably be okay from a cash flow point of view. But if you're going in there and buying a house for £100,000 and going, oh, in five years' time, it's going to be worth £120,000, that's what I would take an issue with because that's not a guarantee. To go back to what you're saying, if you sat there with a big pot of cash and you want to get cash flow and you can lock in your finance and you don't mind if you're buying at the top of the market, go ahead. If it works for you, it works for you. That, that's fine. If you're going in and looking to do a BRR model, there are deals out there. There always will be deals out there. I'm just saying, be a little bit cautious on the other side, because if you're just going in doing a lick of paint, bit of carpet, etc., and the economy goes tits up, which is highly possible that's going to happen, then you've got a bit of an issue because your £100,000 house might go down in value and then you're in a bit of a pickle. But if you're doing it for cash flow and you've got cash out there and it works for you, why not? As a self-styled property nomad, Rob is no stranger to remote investing. What do you think is the greatest challenge for remote investors or expats? Possibly the time difference because let's just say, well, like you are, you work all day, you know, you're in Hong Kong, so you're eight hours ahead, aren't you, of yeah. the UK. So if you work all day in Hong Kong, you get back. How does that work with the broker? How does that work with all these mortgage documents or whatnot? So I'd say getting your head around the time zone difference is possibly the biggest thing. I think that depends on where you are. So actually, I quite like it in Hong Kong because I find that it gives me time to reflect before responding quite a lot. Okay. So for example, I wake up to an issue and then I know that I've got all day to think about it while that person's in bed before I have to respond. Ah, uh, that's interesting. But, but I don't think it works if you're like, you've just come back from Mexico. I think that's a nightmare over that side of the world, I would imagine. Challenging. I was operating for six hours behind. I normally work best in the morning. If I get up at seven o'clock in the morning and start work, that's one o'clock UK time. Already half the day's gone. I, I like the point, actually. It's a very good point. Maybe it does depend on where you are in the world and how you work with your power team. But yeah, actually, you're quite right. If you're operating in advance, and again, eight hours is good, 
maybe that's not that bad. In Mexico, I had to change the way I worked. What I would say is that when I speak to international investors, there always seems to be this thing about, well, you know, if you're not on site or how do you know this about the property and whatnot, if you do your homework, do your due diligence, speak to the right people, take time building up the power team. You don't necessarily physically need to be in the country in order to invest. It's all about the strength of the team. You could do that from anywhere around the world. Yeah, you made me think about the time zone difference. That would be my honest answer. I know that you said you use property sources. A lot of people ask me about, you know, how to find a good sourcing agent. How do you decide which ones to use? Has it been quite a long process and you've had to kiss a few frogs, so to speak? Absolutely. It's do your homework, speak to people, get recommendations, look at some of the deals that they've sourced, check stuff on companies' house to make sure they're all compass mentors. Have they got all the registrations that they need? If they've got all of that, build up a rapport with them. Know what you're after as well. If you don't know what you're after, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Know the area before you speak to a property source or have an idea of the area. Help them to help you. If you can do all that, then you are minimising that risk. And if you can minimise that risk, chances are everything will work in your favour over the long run. Do you think that a good property sourcer should be an expert in just one area or can they source anywhere? Yes. Ideally, they'd be very specific and very well known in a particular area. That's always advantageous. But I have known people that do do it nationally from the homework I've done, from looking through their numbers on the deals that they've had. In my opinion, they've been all right, but it's who you're comfortable with at the end of the day. What would you say is the biggest pitfall to look out for as an expat property investor? It's probably knowing any changes and rules and regulations with regards to tax. I would say speak to a property accountant and tax accountant, understand that position. That would probably be the key thing. Property is property at the end of the day. Buy it, rent it out, do what you need to do with it, renovate it, sell it, whatever it is you need to do. You know, that works. But you know, tax is tax. And there's always going to be weird and wonderful ways to deal with any tax challenges. So I would say from an expat point of view, I imagine that getting the right tax accountant on board from the start, getting the right mortgage broker on from the start, the two key things that I would do. Mortgage broker and tax advice. I would say so, yeah. What about a resource? If you could only suggest one resource that is a favourite of yours or that everyone should have, what would it be? Oh, great question. Some form of team communication. I would say Slack because that's what we use. But some form of, of team communication software uh, would be very, very handy. Can you tell me a little bit more about Slack? That's effectively like WhatsApp, to be fair. Uh, you can send messages within the team, organise activities, organise different workflows and everything like that. You know, you can have it on your desktop, you can have it on your phone. And we found that from just coming back from Mexico for seven weeks, communication's been absolutely spot on. It's been quite easy to run. So hence the recommendation. So Rob, I want to ask you this question. Feel free to tell me to mind my own business, but it is out there on your podcast on episode 83, very brave episode about autism and being on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So would you say that there have been advantages and disadvantages to that in terms of property for you? I would say so. I would say that in both personal life and property, there are advantages and, and disadvantages. Try not to really focus on disadvantages, to be honest. I'm well aware that I will be quite different in terms of the way that I think, possibly how I act around people and things like that. It's probably made me even more direct with people, knowing I've got a good excuse for it. Um, <laughs> I say with a very cheeky smile. Um, yeah, good question. It's probably just made me a bit more direct. I'd say that it's helped a lot more in personal life. It's helped to explain a few things, helped me to understand a lot. Every day is a new day to learn. How can I get better with processes? You know, some things I'm, I'm just 
you know, dealing with vendors is not something I'm too au fait with. Why? Because it involves dealing with people. I don't get empathy, that sort of stuff. You know, trying to tune into people's emotions, it's straight over my head. I won't lie. I have great difficulty with that. So therefore, dealing with a vendor situation, you know, someone's dog dies. It's like, uh, okay, what do you want me to say to that? It's like, sorry, it doesn't sound sincere at all. So that's why we use sources. And the fact that, you know, sources are in the area, we're not. So if I had to pop an advantage down, maybe that is one of them. But it's, it's helped more in personal life. It's funny you say that, though, Rob, because... I find in your podcast that you are a very good listener in terms of when you interview people. So I think your people skills are really good. I appreciate I appreciate the comment. That just comes down from learning. There is nothing worse than a podcast host that keeps interrupting a guest. If I'm interviewing, I'll sit back, I'll listen, and I'll just direct conversation. My people skills are okay. They could be a lot better. But no, I appreciate I appreciate the compliment. As you know, after doing X amount of episodes, you get your own style, you do your own things, and always been told, you know, you've been given two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> Use them. What if people want to get in touch with you, Rob? What's the best way to do it? A couple of things. Now, number one, check out the podcast, subscribe to the podcast as well. A check out us on um, YouTube, Instagram, just search for the Property Nomads Podcast. Our Patreon account as well, if you want to help donate to the podcast. If you want me as a guest on shows or anything like that, you can email me rob at tpnpodcast.com. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, Rob. So I thank you for your time and for your wonderful podcast. Let's keep in touch. All the best. Thank you. The three most interesting points to pick out from today's show are firstly, Rob's argument against investing purely for capital growth as a strategy particularly in the current macroeconomic climate. Rob's advice is not to invest in the hope that house prices will rise in the short term and warns those following the BRR model to proceed with caution. Secondly, Rob very wisely suggests putting aside a certain amount of your monthly income as a reserve fund. It's not the first time we've heard a guest say that on here, but it doesn't do any harm to hear it again. And my final highlight was the way Rob reflects on mistakes that have been made along the way, and rather than shifting the blame onto someone else, he advocates taking responsibility and using those experiences as a means of making improvements going forward. For this week's exotic listener location, we're off to New Zealand, which I've always wanted to visit, and hopefully one day I'll be able to. So if you're one of our listeners in that beautiful part of the world, it will be great to hear how you ended up there and how your expat property story is going. So get in touch at the podcast website www.expatpropertystory.com. Now, since COVID, it's been notoriously difficult to get hold of a solicitor and particularly a good one, but I've managed to get hold of one for next week's episode. So make sure you follow the show on your chosen podcast provider so that you get next week's release as soon as it's published. And among other things, you'll find out why it's not a good idea to try and contact your solicitor on a Friday. As ever, please rate, review and subscribe. And if you know of anyone who might want to listen to the Property Nomads podcast or read Rob's books, then share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to Expat Property Story. Story.